Our scripture reading today is from James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is this, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Philip. Morning. You all right? They're busy up here. Um, if you don't know me, um, or if you're you haven't been around too long. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. There we go. Um, if you've been around for a little while, uh, or you do know me, uh, you'll know I haven't been up here to preach uh, in, in a little while. Um, so I just want to just start, I did this in the first gathering, um, just start by saying thank you um, to, to our church family, uh, those of you who have loved us and cared for us, um, for me and Jenny and our family. Um, some of you will know to kind of varying degrees. Um, we've been through uh, just a lot of trials, a lot of sorrow and suffering uh, the last few months. Um, big surgeries and hospital stays and uh, Jenny's mom recently passing away uh, pretty abruptly. So um, thank you um, just for loving us. And thanks for all the meals, um, for the flowers, um, for just for the messages and, and just for the, the deep prayers. Um, you know who you are, who have uh, really held us up. Um, so thank you for loving us. Thanks just for our staff as well, um, who've had to s- just pick up the slack with me being off for a little while. Um, our elders kind of stepping up and, and preaching more um, and just letting me be uh, with my family and, and caring for them. So um, one of the things we've learned um, or kind of maybe just been shown afresh is that our church is our family. Um, and that's really absolutely true uh, and you really, it really becomes apparent in times of, of sorrow and suffering. So uh, thank you for being our family and, and loving us. Um, yeah. Um, we're continuing our series in James. We're really uh, kind of halfway, kind of nearing the third, final third of this letter. Um, if you, you might know, we've recently finished a, a big, long series through Hebrews. Um, if you're with us through that, then you know the main point, the main message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's far superior than anyone or anything. And because that's true, the author of Hebrews uh, spends about 13 chapters calling us to perseverance in our faith. He's calling us to continue on, to hold on to the very end to our faith. Uh, And so James, uh, his letter is, is a really good kind of sequel to Hebrews. Uh, Maybe that's why it comes right after Hebrews in the Bible, but it's kind of part two because James' letter is all about living out your faith. 
James gets real practical. He's real kind of gritty in parts. He's essentially telling you, here's what Hebrews, here's how to actually do what Hebrews is telling you to do. Here's how to actually live out your faith. Um, It's not just something that you kind of assent to mentally. Um, True religion, true Christianity isn't something that you just agree with. It's something that actually changes the way you live your life. It changes the way you interact with people and treat people and speak to them. Um, The way you live in this world. Um, It's all about living out that faith. Not just being a hearer of the word, James says, but a doer of it. Um, James gives us a picture of a faith that works, a faith that is in action. Um, Let me quickly remind you where we've been. In chapter one, he begins on this topic of trials, uh, and he he essentially tells us how he expects Christians to respond to them, uh, and he expects Christians to respond to trials with rejoicing. Um, I really almost just kind of want to go back and preach that again because it's near and dear to my heart right now, uh, but I won't. Um, And he ends chapter one, 19 to 27, he turns to this subject of true Christianity, uh, and he contrasts really these true claims of faith with false claims of faith, and at the end of chapter 21, in verses 26 and 27, you might want to look at that if you have your Bible open, he really gives this summary statement of what true religion looks like, what true Christianity, true living in your faith looks like, and it's this three-part summary. He says, firstly, it shows in your speech Secondly, it shows in our care for those in need. Thirdly, it shows in our refusal to conform to prevailing worldliness. So he's not saying here's what true faith is. He's saying this is what it actually looks like to to, to live it out in your life. Shows in your speech, shows in the way you care for those around you, and it shows in your refusal to conform to this world. Um, Those are his three main subjects that he just kind of weaves in and out of through the rest of the letter. You've seen how he's done that in the first couple chapters. Chapter two, he he contrasts sinful partiality, showing favoritism in the the church family to true and genuine fellowship. Um, He then shows us the evidence of true faith, which as we said, is faith in action. It's a faith that that actually works. It's a faith that obeys and, and loves. And then last week, Alan looked at The first 12 verses of chapter three, where we looked at the tongue, um, our speech, and we saw that those with true faith use their tongue to build up rather than to tear down and to divide. And that brings us to our study today, this passage where James begins to talk about wisdom. Um, And and really the connection between talking about our tongue or our speech and talking about wisdom will Alan started to talk about it at the end of last week's sermon where he said, he stressed that um, the tongue is simply a reflection of what's in our heart. So what comes from the tongue, it springs forth from the source and the source is our heart. And he pointed out that that source, our heart, needs to be changed. But you cannot change it on your own. It absolutely has to be changed, but God must be the one who does the changing. He is the one who brings about true heart change. It's by his grace that you are able to have a changed heart. So that moves us from really the the symptom of the problem, which is what comes from our tongue, to the source of the problem, which is what's in our heart. And then James asks this question, how do you know whether a person has true wisdom in their heart. 
Let me read the passage one more time. Verse 13, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me pray for us one more time. Um, Heavenly Father, who is the all-wise God, uh, we come to you again asking for your help. Um, Right now, in this moment, Lord, we ask for wisdom from you. And Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Only you can open hearts. Only you can use uh, a, a weak sinner like me to impart truth, to bring dead people to life again, to, to give sight to the blind. And I pray you do that for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you know if you're wise? And how do you know when someone else in your life has wisdom? And we have a lot of smart people in our church. We have doctors and teachers and psychologists and technicians, a lot of intellectuals. And uh, so I want to ask the question, really James wants to ask the question here, um, who among you is wise? How do you know if someone has wisdom, true wisdom stored up in their heart? Think of the different realms of your life. Um, Who are you thinking of that you're like, that person is wise. What about in our church? Who, who are the wise ones in our church? Is it the ones that are just up at front? Um, what about in your workplace? What about in your friend group? What about at home, in your family? Who are the wise ones? Who's that person that you would go to if you were in need? And then, why are you thinking of that person? What is it that defines them as a wise person? It can be kind of tricky, can't it? Um, and it's, it's difficult to answer sometimes because, as you know, knowledge doesn't always equal wisdom. Um, intellectual ability, smarts, uh, doesn't always make someone wise. And we're a Bible-believing church, and, and the Bible says a lot about wisdom, so let's go there for our answer. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may have already, because we're talking about wisdom, your mind may have already gone to Psalm 9, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, so if you want true wisdom, the place to start, the psalmist says, is by fearing the Lord. That, that word fearing the Lord, it means to stand in awe of or to revere. It's the acknowledgement of who God is and all of his power, all of his might, all of his glory, all of his wisdom, and and who we are in comparison. Job says the same thing as the psalmist in in Job 28, where he kind of asks rhetorically, where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? 
Do you see how Job's question is the exact same question as that James is asking in verse 13? Where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? And then Job answers, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So this idea of fearing the Lord being core to uh, wisdom is really found all throughout Scripture. And, and in the Old Testament, that phrase, fearing the Lord, is really equivalent to, to trusting in the Lord, and it really refers to saving faith. Um, Moses does this. He, Moses had this kind of really hard task of essentially having a large group of people and teaching them again what it means to be God's people, what it means to be in relationship with him. And he tells them, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. He says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So the, to, to be in relationship with him is kind of equivalent to, to fearing him and to trusting him. Even in the New Testament, that you have this term God-fearer. And that's, it was used of, of Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who, who trusted in the Lord to the extent that their knowledge and their understanding of the revelation of God allowed them to. And, and in Acts 17, 17, Paul used this. He, was, he said he was reasoning with them in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So fearing, fearing the Lord is, is trusting in the Lord. It's submitting to him. It's, it's coming into relationship with him. Um, and the New Testament gets even more explicit than that. It, it talks about the source of true wisdom. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he declares that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul tells the uh, Colossians that, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it gets really specific, doesn't it? The New Testament says if you want wisdom, it's found in Jesus Christ. He is the source of God's wisdom. Go to him, be with him if you want true wisdom. So hopefully that kind of quickly gives you a, an idea of what wisdom is. This, this fear of the Lord, standing in awe of him, trusting in him, submitting to him, going to Jesus, being with him, becoming like him, the source of the wisdom of God. That's what true wisdom is, but that's not really what James is trying to get across here. He's not really trying to describe what wisdom is. He's just trying to say, this is how you recognize it in someone's life. So the question still stands, how do you, how do you recognize it in someone's life? And that's the question that James answers in verse 13. Who among you is wise? He's almost giving us this test of wisdom. Who's that person you're thinking of that's wise? Almost like bring them out and and let's put them to the test. Here's how you can tell that they really are. And that, that test of wisdom, how you recognize it, is the second half of verse 13. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. Let him show it by their good behavior, his, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. And if you're taking notes, if you're one that kind of writes in your Bible, underline those words, let him show. That should bring you back to chapter two, verse 18, where James gives this kind of test of true faith. He says, if, if you want to see true faith in someone's life, show it to me in the way that you live your life. 
Show me your faith and your works. If someone has genuine faith, you'll be able to, to see it uh, as the evidence in the way they, they live their life. And he's saying the exact same thing here about wisdom. You'll be able to see it in the way they live their lives. So he's saying wisdom is something that can be shown. And, and if it does not exist in someone's heart, it cannot be shown. It is seen not primarily in words, but in deeds, in, in the way they conduct and, and live their life. It's in the way they live their life rather than in their brain power and what they know that shows that they are wise. And James, isn't, he's not writing off the need for knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. He's just saying, this is how you see it in someone's life, not intellectually, but behaviorally. And you might be familiar with uh, Proverbs uh, 3, verses 5 to 6. Um, everyone's heard this, these verses before. Proverbs is all about wisdom and in this passage, essentially we're given the essence of life, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your way, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So wisdom is about acknowledging the Lord in all of your ways. James is saying that wisdom, it's not simply seeing how you acknowledge him, it's actually acknowledging him. It's not just being able to describe, this is how you acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. It's actually doing it. It's seen in your life. It's living in the fear of the Lord and in awe of him and respect and reverence of him. In every aspect of your life, living in accordance with his ways. James is saying that Christians are called by God to actually live their wisdom. It's something that can be seen in the way that they live their lives. I don't love the way that ESV renders that text good conduct. Um, kind of makes me think of the, like the goody two-shoes in school, that, that student that always did the right thing. They never set a wrong foot, and you just kind of hated them for it. That's not what the original text means here. Um, in fact, there's two ancient Greek words that are used in the New Testament for good. Uh, the first word is agathos, it's the kind of broad, general sense of the word good. It means good, it means virtuous, it means right. That's not the word that James uses here, although he could have. He uses this second Greek word, which is kalos, which literally means beautiful. It can be shown in their beautiful life. Wisdom is not just living the good and virtuous right life. Wisdom is shown in a life that is beautiful. There's beauty about a wise person's life. There's an attractiveness to the wise person's life. And James actually, in verse 13, he tells us what it is that makes the wise person's life beautiful. He says it's meekness. It's, it's, it's shown in the gentleness of wisdom. So these, these, these good works are to be done, but they're to be done with the spirit of humility, with the spirit of gentleness, True believers are to demonstrate true wisdom and understanding by life of gentleness. And please don't misunderstand what gentleness, what meekness means. Meekness does not mean weakness, okay? And we did a series in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back and listen to those Beatitudes. We learned this. That, that word meekness, it doesn't mean weakness. Rather, it means power under control, 
So that word was used uh, often to, to speak of like a, a wild horse that was broken and made useful to its owner. And I don't know if you've ever been around a horse, like a workhorse on a farm. Powerful animals, but it's power under control and it's useful to its owner. That, that's this meekness, this gentleness that this word means. So for believers, gentleness is to be willingly under the, the sovereign control of God. That's how Moses was described in, in Numbers, 13, or Numbers 12. A passage that says, Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So Moses was very meek, very gentle. Yet you read those scriptures of, of Moses and he is not weak. He, he, is, he, is, um, he could act decisively. He was a strong leader. He could have his anger flared up. But he had this, this meekness of wisdom, this gentleness that's on display in the deeds of a wise person's life. Gentleness, humility, meekness. Um, that's an essential character trait to Christ followers. It's not, an, it's not an optional character trait. It's not that some followers of Christ will be gentle, humble, and meek, and some a little bit more brash. Um, that, that's not true. Some of us are, but if you are a true follower of Christ, if, you, if his spirit is truly living in you, you will begin to bear his fruit, which is what? Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. None of us is perfect in that. No one will, will achieve perfect gentleness this side of glory, but those with true wisdom will be growing in gentleness. True believers will be moving away from sinfulness towards Christ-likeness, which is gentleness. James said that back in chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, therefore, put away all filthiness, put away rampant wickedness, and turn and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. True Christ followers will be growing in gentleness. True Christ followers will be becoming more and more like Jesus. And Jesus tells us what's in his source, in his heart. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. That's what Jesus is like. And those who follow him will become more and more like him. So when you're looking for wisdom in someone's life, when you're looking for it in your life, look for it in their behavior, James says. Look for it in the way they live their life. Look for it in gentleness. If there's no gentleness, there's no true wisdom. Go look for it in someone else's life. Go follow someone else. If you don't see gentleness, that person doesn't have true wisdom stored up in their heart and they are not worth following. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that one of the qualifications of the elders of the church is gentleness. Make sure they are gentle. If they're not, get rid of them. That's his first point. When looking for true wisdom, look for it in their life, in their behavior, in their gentleness. And the rest of this section, James really he begins to compare and contrast again, and he shows us two kinds of wisdom. 
Uh, well, one is true wisdom and one is a false wisdom. It's not really wisdom, um, but he, he, he calls it that. Um, and really, these two wisdoms, he shows us that each of them have a source. So they come from somewhere. Each of them have a, a motivation. They're motivated by something. And each of them have a result. So they each have a source. They're each motivated by something. And each have, they result in something. So um, let's look at the first one in verse 14. Where he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... That's opposite of what he's talking about, isn't it? He's been talking about gentleness. Now he's talking about being selfish and, and jealous. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So this is false wisdom, and what's the source of it? Where does he say this wisdom comes from? James says it doesn't come down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He, he gets pretty straight to the point, doesn't he? He says it's from the devil. It, it's a worldly wisdom. It's earthly, but the problem goes even deeper than the earth. This kind of wisdom is the complete antithesis of anything that comes from God. It's, it's subtly yet powerfully demonic. And the first, the first sight that we get of this kind of wisdom is actually way back in Genesis 3 where the serpent tempted Eve to trust in his wisdom rather than in God's wisdom. That, that was Eve's choice, to, to either trust in heavenly wisdom from above or in an earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom from Satan himself. And that's it's still what he's tempting every single one of us with even today. David Platt says one of, the more, one of the most important factors of our growth in wisdom is perspective. Um, that, that's what Hebrews was all about, wasn't it? It's about, it's, Hebrews was calling us to a, an eternal perspective. We're not focused on just the here and now. We're focused on what's to come. We're focused on the end, on finishing the race, on what's after the finish, the, the reward at the end. That eternal glory, that's where our perspective is and having that eternal perspective it changes the way we live now doesn't it but that's not what worldly wisdom does worldly wisdom perceives everything in terms of the immediate effect what is best for self-advancement now what's best for self-pleasure now that's incredibly dangerous perspective church and it brings us to the motivation of this worldly false wisdom. It's motivated by self-centered ambition. Now, wisdom in the world measures everything by how it affects you. It's concerned with how you can advance yourself, promote yourself, assert yourself. A worldly wisdom approaches every relationship and conversation and circumstance with that root question, what can I get out of this? And James says, that wisdom is from the devil. And remember um, back in chapter two, Thomas talked about uh, showing favoritism in the church. And we saw in chapter two that um, a favoritism that was driven by nothing but selfish ambition. So there were people who were ignoring the poor in the church simply because they couldn't get anything from them. That kind of wisdom always asks, what's best for me? And this kind of wisdom, it leads to broken marriages. 
it leads to their being ignored poor in our midst. It leads to churches that are decimated. What's best for me? That's the the motivation of worldly wisdom. How to achieve your aspiration. How to assert yourself, promote yourself, advance yourself. Meanwhile, Jesus, what does he say? Deny yourself. Self-centered ambition is at the heart of worldly wisdom, and James says it's demonic. It's filled with envy. It's always comparing yourself to others to see who is better or worse. And James says the result of this kind of wisdom is disorder and evil. That's where earthly wisdom always leads. A wisdom that is marked by self-centered ambition leads to broken homes and churches filled with disgruntled members. It's a recipe for disorder and evil. Earthly wisdom produces anger, bitterness, resentment, divisions. This kind of wisdom robs us of love, intimacy, trust, fellowship, and harmony with others. Which is why we desperately need another kind of wisdom, which is what James turns to describe in verse 17 a godly wisdom that comes down from heaven. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the source of this wisdom is from above. It's from heaven. This wisdom comes down from above. That should uh, bring you back to James uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, where James says, If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. So you don't, (laughs) this is different. You don't get this wisdom from intellectual effort. You don't get this wisdom from practical experience. You get this wisdom by being with God. This is a wisdom that that comes down from above. It's different from knowledge. This isn't just information that you fill your heads with, even right information. You don't get it from going to university. You don't get it from reading the right books. You don't get it by having the right friends. You get it by asking the Lord for it. You get it by asking the Lord for it. It's his that he gives generously to us from heaven. You get it by being with God. Um, it's, It's the fruit of being with him. Do you want this wisdom? Go to him. Ask him for it. And he will give it to you. How good is that? How, how, how generous is he? That's the source of true wisdom. It comes down from above. And this wisdom has a, it's a different perspective than an earthly wisdom. Um, An earthly wisdom is a here and now mentality. How can I advance myself? How can I get pleasure now? Uh, Heavenly wisdom sees things from an eternal perspective that only can come from God. It's this 10,000 year from now perspective that, that changes the way wise people live here, changes the way wise people treat others It changes the way wise people speak to people right now. And that kind of perspective, again, can only come from God. 
We must go to him constantly in prayer and in his word, crying out to him in order to receive heavenly wisdom. It's the point of Proverbs 2, 1 to 8. I'll read this to you. Proverbs 2, 1 to 8 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for it, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Do you want to gain godly wisdom? Do you want to receive that wisdom that's from above? Do you? Great. It's on offer for free. You just have to be with him. You just have to go to him and ask for it. You just have to desire it. You have to seek it like silver. You have to search for it like a hidden treasure, although it's not a hidden treasure. He's just waiting to give it to you generously and without criticizing you, even for your past. He wants to give it to you. Isn't that so good? We as a church ought to be desperate for this. We ought to be crying out to him daily for this wisdom. Only God can give this wisdom, which is why this godly wisdom is motivated by God-centered humility. Worldly wisdom, motivated by self-centered ambition. Godly wisdom, motivated by a God-centered humility. So because we, we cannot just attain this heavenly wisdom on our own accord, because we must go to him for it, the motivation is a God-centered humility. It's us fearfully and joyfully and humbly going before him and asking this all-wise God for this gift of his wisdom. It's a God-centered humility. Look at how this wisdom is described in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, doesn't show favoritism. It's sincere, it's without hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see how this heavenly wisdom, when James is, is trying to describe what this wisdom that comes down from heaven looks like, it mirrors the, the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is is Jesus himself describing what those in his kingdom are like. And, And James is mirroring that here. James says, godly wisdom is first of all pure. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. James says, godly wisdom is peaceable. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James says, godly wisdom is gentle. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. James says, godly wisdom is open to reason. It's submissive, it's, it's compliant. Jesus says, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, the lowly in that way, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James says, godly wisdom is full of mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
James says godly wisdom is full of good fruit. James, uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You see how when James is describing wisdom, this heavenly wisdom, he's basically describing the fruit of the Spirit in, G- in Galatians 5, and he's also describing, he's mirroring Jesus' description of those who are in the kingdom of God. What's really interesting is if you read this, these two verses, verses 17 and 18, in the original language, uh, James, he organizes these, these characters of godly wisdom in this beautiful literary style. Um, he actually groups them by the, way they're, by the way they sound. So it sounds really beautiful and poetic when you say it. There's, there, there's the, this result is this beautiful picture of the blessing of the wisdom that comes from God. And again, this, this beautiful, this godly wisdom results in this beautiful life. And he just kind of reflects that in the way he writes it. This wisdom is God-centered. It's not man-centered. This wisdom results in a beautiful humility in man, which is exactly the opposite of worldly wisdom, which produces self-centered pride in man. And, but this uh, simply a beautiful life of humility. It's, it's, he gets more specific than, than that in, in what this godly wisdom results in. He says in verse 18, well, earthly wisdom results in disorder and evil. In verse 18, he says, godly wisdom results in peace and righteousness. God's wisdom produces that which is right, that which is pleasing and honoring to God, and that which is good for the people of God. The peacemakers are, are blessed. They will be called sons and daughters of, of God. They're his family. And that's exactly what God wants for us, for our relationships, is peace. It's what Jesus came to restore. Shalom, our wholeness, our, our unity in our relationships, in our home, in our church. Not peace at all cost. He's not saying, let's just all get along by avoiding the truth by voting convi- conviction to the truth. That, that's not what James is saying here because what does he say about this, this, this wisdom at the start? He says, first of all, it's pure. This, this wisdom is pure. That, means, that word means chast. It, it's, there's this chastity. There's this singleness to God's ways. Wisdom seeks his ways. It acknowledges him in all of our ways. So it's not just peace at all costs. It's, it's pure, and that purity produces peace. In fact, I know some of you are here because of that. I know some of you um, have had to leave other churches because there was, they didn't cling to the truth. That's painful. It's okay to do. I, I want you to do that with us. If we ever stop clinging to the truth and... and, and uh, and being pure in our wisdom in that way, you have permission to go find another church that does. Please do. We're not talking about having peace at all costs. What James is talking about is those who promote peace among their brothers and sisters. It's pure. It's a purity that produces peace. That's their agenda is peace and righteousness. And the question is, what does this actually look like in our community? What does this kind of peace-promoting, righteousness-harvesting kind of wisdom look like in our context? 
You could, you could probably apply it to, well, anything. There's a lot of different areas that you can think of, but here's one practical example that, that was kind of laid on my heart this week, and I think it's really important for us. It's not giving in to gossip. And I'm painting a picture for you here. Say let's uh, a brother or a sister uncharacteristically shares with you a piece of gossip, and if you were to share that, it would bring division into a family or into a church family. And let's say you decide that you're not going to pass that piece of gossip on. That, that, that's going to die with me. It's not going anywhere else. I'm not going to pass that on. That, friends, is, is godly wisdom. It, it's, 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 that's a peace-promoting Christian who has this heavenly wisdom stored up in their heart. They're not concerned with selfish ambition. They're concerned with peace and righteousness in the community. Real wisdom is, is peace-promoting. It has this agenda to promote godly, spiritual, true Christian unity amongst their community. A, a wise person controls their tongue and uses it for building up their brothers and sisters rather than tearing it down and dividing. One wisdom is from the earth. It's unspiritual. It's from the devil. It, it, it produces hostility, produces di- disunity. The other wisdom is from above and it promotes peace. I think not giving in to gossip is really important for us. Um, here's why partly because we're a young church, but partly because of the, the community that we're trying to shape here. We have a community who we deeply value togetherness. We deeply value openness and honesty. We deeply value bearing with one another's burdens. So we desperately need a heavenly wisdom in order to do that well, in order to do that in a way that promotes peace and unity and righteousness. So if we lack wisdom from above, we only have an an earthly wisdom, then even our attempts at building community will create disorder and evil. Heavenly wisdom will be able to tell you whether or not you're truly bearing with one another's burdens or if you're simply complaining and gossiping. And earthly wisdom will result in disorder, disunity, and evil. Heavenly wisdom will always result in peace, unity, and righteousness. We desperately need the wisdom that comes from above, even in our attempts of building church community. James is saying, how do you know you have the seed of godly wisdom stored up in your heart? He says, because it springs forth with the fruit of righteousness. And when you re-sow it in the lives of others, you sow that in peace. And you do it with the desire of creating peace, peace between God and man, peace between brothers and sisters. That's what we desire for our church. A village we desire to produce wise people, wise disciples. But saying that, we also want to recognize that only the Spirit can make someone wise. 
Only the Spirit can make you wise. Are you desperate for wisdom? Are you desperate for that for our church community? If you are, then join me in asking him for it. Let's cry out to him to give us that heavenly wisdom. If you, if you lack heavenly wisdom completely today, um, bad news is I can't give it to you. I can't teach it to you. Only the Spirit can give it to you. That the natural man can, does not see the things of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can give it. The good news is he's ready and willing to give it to you freely. If only you come to him. If only you cry out for that. If you're a Christian today and you realize that you're not as wise as you ought to be, it's probably all of us. There's no technique. There's no like seven-step process to becoming more wise. You simply need to apply it by the Spirit. It's by the grace of the Spirit, through the means of grace, the Spirit will grant you that wisdom. It's why we talk about abiding in Jesus daily. It's being with him it's being attached to him that we begin to bear his fruit, his gentleness. James will tell us, he says, the only reason we lack wisdom is that we haven't asked for it. So we need to go to the Father of lights, he says, who's willing and generous in the way he gives and answers prayers. We need to pray for wisdom. May God grant us that wisdom. Um, we stand with me as we pray. And Father, we, we just thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace in our lives. Um, that when we are unwise, when we are, um, when all we do is kind of create disunity and evil, that you still show us compassion. That you still love us. That you still call us to come to you. That you're still waiting to generously give us wisdom that only comes from you. I pray for these brothers and sisters, Lord. May you create in them uh, just a hunger and a thirst for your wisdom. May we desire your wisdom that creates peace and righteousness in all we do. Lord, create in our church lives that are beautiful, lives that, that uh, just Pour out your spirit. Pour out your fruit. That are so gentle, so loving. There's only one explanation for that. It's like they have the wisdom of God stored up in their lives. Uh, do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, and do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name.